in Wes's current album, a part of it is talking about his passion and his desire and how he's looked at and how he's remembered and how he's responded to. Um, a lot has uh, fallen in the wake of the death of many of um, rap superstars who um, have been forced into remembrance through money-making opportunities, through albums. But when we look at all of these ideals, whether fallen or redeemed, every man wants to be remembered for something. And the question on the floor is, what will you be remembered for? I, I, can, I know some of you have grandparents. My, my, my um, wife always talks about um, what she remembers about her grandfather um, in wake of his death, both of them. And, and, and what's interesting is when I talk to different people about what do you remember, some of you, a smell will bring them back to memory. Maybe, I don't know if your granddaddy did snuff, stuff, stuff, and this snuff, and you remember the smell of the snuff and the cup on the table, or he smoked cigars, or, or he wore Old Spice. You know, so when you smell the smell of Old Spice, that's granddaddy's um, Old Spice. You know, or you smell the type of Bengay that he used to use, menthol Bengay, spearmint Bengay. Original um, recipe being gay. I don't know what he used, but everybody like every everything jogs memory. And the question is, when when after we're gone, and things that bring up the familiarity of who we were when we were existence, what will we be remembered for? You know, in a book, I think every daddy should read. It's a it's a secular book, but it's a social anthology on fatherlessness in America, written in the 90s. And he gives several designations as we dive into the scriptures that I think is worthy of looking at. And he talks about the crisis of fatherhood in America. In Philly alone, 90% of the children born in Philly today are born to single-parent homes. And because of that, that's an, that's an epidemic. People don't get married here. Daddies do their thing, dip, hang around. But it's interesting what my man kind of talks about. He talks about several types of parent fathers. He calls one the unnecessary father. The unnecessary father. He calls another one the old father. The other one he calls, he calls the new father. Then he has the one called the deadbeat dad. Then he has the visiting father. He has the sperm father. And then he has the stepfather and the nearby guy. It's interesting that we really don't have a uniformed understanding of fatherhood. We don't have a biblical understanding of manhood. And what we're in desperate need for is that reality. Listen to what he says in his introduction. He says, in the United States, the United States is becoming an increasingly fatherless society. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his or her father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parity with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. You hear that? Fatherlessness is becoming the norm. Not having a father is remaining the norm. Listen to what he says as he goes on. He says, the astonishing fact is reflected in many statistics. These are old school statistics, but you've got to think of where it's come from even 15 years ago. But here are two more important. Tonight, about 40% of the American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. Before they reach the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhoods living apart from their fathers. 
Never before in the country has so many children been voluntarily abandoned by their fathers. Never before have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. We talk about the churchlessness of our generation. We talk about the fact that there are so many unchurched people. And, but what about those who don't even have an idea what it's like when we even talk about the idea and construct of a father? See, in our society, we got your man Bweezy talking about he's stunting like his daddy. You see what I'm saying? And he kisses pops on the lips and still thugging it. He get tears down his cheek talking about he an OG. And he gets the affirmation of a guy that's probably maybe, baby is maybe 10 years older than Wheezy. But a lot of cats can relate to Wheezy. Why can they relate to Wheezy? Because they grew up fatherless just like him. And baby represents for them hip-hop raising them, hip-hop giants that are maybe 10, 15 years older than them. Maybe old enough to be their father. Maybe old enough to be their uncle. But now... The desperation for fatherhood has become so critical that cats are looking anywhere um, to fulfill the daddy wound. And so today we're going to talk about, through the scriptures, a passage that I think should be a, become a part of every man's tool belt. Every man needs a tool belt. Whether you're going to be a surrogate father, that, that's not, I'm not talking about artificial nothing, you know what I'm saying? And when I say surrogate father, I'm talking about fathering people who are already born. Not, you know what I'm saying? I just got to clear that up. Um, but what's interesting is this passage today over in 1 Kings chapter 2 is a wonderful passage where you see David on his deathbed. And David has just anointed his son as king through the prophet Nathan and the priest. And so here we come to a point in David's career where David is dying and he has to think legacy. He has to think legacy. He has to think more than about what his time was like. And now he has to make sure and ensure that there's a biblical legacy going on in his son. Now, David wasn't the perfect father. You know what I'm saying? David wasn't the perfect example, and we're going to talk about the perfect, not just example, but uh, 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 the, the perfect one who displays fatherhood better than anyone else. But what's interesting is that God still has a sense in which he points us in, 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 a, in, a, in a temporal way to David. David had his son Absalom running after him. He had a bad relationship with his son. He had bad relationships with his daughter. He had, he had, David had bad relationships, but he still wanted to make sure that um, the ways in which he dropped the ball as a father did not continue to make its way through the generations after him. And he sought to disciple and pour into and develop his son Solomon. You see over in the first Chronicles, uh, 22, where David talks about the place of his son, and stay in 1 Kings, but he talks about his son's place. And what's interesting is he knew exactly spiritually in, in Solomon's maturity what Solomon was, but he also knew in his natural maturity what Solomon was. And so what's beautiful is that David was asking God for the opportunity to build a temple. In 2 uh, uh, Samuel chapter 7, and God said, no, nah, I want you to fall back from that. 
because you're a man because you're a man of war and that's not how I want your reign to be marked. And so he said, I'll fall back from it. But he didn't allow the fact that God told him no, that he couldn't build the temple to not help him to play a role in helping develop and prepare his son to be able to win. And so he says, my son is young and inexperienced. He told the nation that. And because he's young and inexperienced, I'm going to leverage my lifetime relationships to make sure that the legacy of the work that God wants to do will continue to move on. And so what he does, he said, I'm not going to build the temple, but I am going to gather all of the resources needed in order that the temple may be built. And so we come to this passage right here where he has properly prepared Solomon to be able to reign. And what's interesting as we go through here is he doesn't talk much about being a king here. He talks very little about it. And we're going to talk about what he talks about in this passage. He says in verse 1, he says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man or be a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways. And keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." So today I want to talk about for a little while the legacy of a godly father. The legacy of a godly father. This legacy theme that we're continuing to hammer away at. I want us to continue to think about legacy because I don't want, I don't believe God wants us to be marked as those who cared more about what happened during our time span like Hezekiah. Hezekiah, God had a, had a judgment that he brought on Hezekiah that there was going to be captivity. And over in, um, over in um, Isaiah chapter 38 through chapter uh, 39. And what's funny is Hezekiah said, oh man, I'm glad that's not during my time. At least while I'm on the planet, everything's going to be cool. Now, I don't really care about what things are going to be like after I'm gone which is a crazy relationship and a, and, a, and a mindset of a king to want to even have with those who come behind him. And so we see David preparing his son to reign, but he has a, 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 a chat with his son. He, he's like, son, I, I want to talk to you about some things before I close my eyes in time, before I'm placed into the grave. He says, I got some last minute things that I want to lay out to you. And what's interesting about these things that he lays out is most cats, most men never get the opportunity for their father, let alone any man, to even come alongside of them and begin to speak to them concerning issues of fatherhood, but then also issues of manhood. So that brings me to my one and only point. I'm going to just have one point today. A godly father leaves a clear legacy a biblical manhood. A godly father leaves a clear legacy of biblical manhood. This is of monto importance from a man Solomon because he goes and David says to him, he says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, 
I am about to go the way of all the earth. I like that. <laughs> because, you know, Solomon's a young strapping king. The Bible calls Solomon's one of the only kings that you don't really know how old he was when he became king. We have indicators in First uh, Chronicles chapter 22 and the last chapter of Chronicles when the Bible says that he was young and inexperienced. So people think that he was between the ages of 13 and 21 years old based on the usage of that word. So my man Solomon is about to get on the throne and David says something to him because, you know, I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever gone to a gun range. You know, have ever held a gun in your hand or just had some type of power. And, you, and you're like, man, this feels good. When you smell those caps busting off, you're like, dang, that, that just felt real, real good. And men, when we tend to get power and an opportunity over others or over ourselves, what begins to happen is we begin to get puffed up. And so what my man, what my man David says to his son is something smooth. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. What is he saying to him? He says, son, you ain't going to be here forever. Don't get puffed up because of the authority that you're about to get. Don't, don't think that your lifespan on this planet is going to be forever. There are limits, even though you're about to come into authority, even though I'm about to die and you're about to experience an opportunity for leadership. Listen, your time on planet Earth is short. Almost every single discipler in the Bible, every single one that was discipling them, whether it was Elijah, whether it was Moses, um, whether it was Paul, whether it was Jesus, Whoever it was that was discipling and pouring into a community of men or an individual man, always let them know the fact that their, more, their time on planet Earth is short and limited. And because of that, their time and their focus in that disciple making and in that pouring and in that developing is to make sure that we don't, we don't mess around on planet Earth and, and, and play around with our time, but make the most of our time knowing that God will keep an account of our time. Paul says to his, his disciples in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 3, he says, For I betrothed you to one husband who is Christ. So the betrothal period of the church, he let them know, listen, the betrothal period is a short period. We don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back, so make the most of your time. My man, uh, Joshua, um, when, when, when Moses was shown by God that Joshua was going to succeed him, Joshua began to talk to, uh, Moses began to talk to Joshua before he gave the charge. In the first verse of Joshua chapter 1, verse, verse 1 and 2, it says, God said to Joshua, my servant Moses is dead. Every single man has a specific anointed and appointed time that Yahweh has sovereignly and providentially laid out in which we must maximize our time on planet earth. And so my man David is beginning to tell his son, listen son, you don't have forever. Because he doesn't want him to live his life like this is the only life that exists for you. And that you're going to be here forever. And what's interesting is you can see Solomon in his in Ecclesiastes as an old head writing. And he feels his mortality. All he says throughout the whole time in Ecclesiastes is that everything is a vapor. I've seen a lot, but all of the enjoyment and the spoils of life. He says, matter of fact, I've committed my riches that God has given me to, 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 to reach the extent of whatever people have been able to enjoy on planet Earth. And guess what, fam? He says, it's all a vapor. And so my man David lets his son know, listen, son. Time, there's a clock 
on your time that God has given you the ability to rule. There's a clock on your time that God has given you the ability to reign. There's a clock. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we always are understanding the fact that the Christ can come back at any moment. And so we must redeem the times and make the most of the times that the Lord has given them. So he tells them, son, you don't have forever. I remember um, Dr. Evans, when we used to spend time with him monthly um, as interns um, at Oakland Bible Fellowship, and I remember when he turned 50. I'll never forget what he told us. He said, he, he, he gathered us around the sons of the ministry, and he said, he said, you all, I've just turned 50, and I am probably entering the final quarter of my life. And he says, and I want this final quarter of my life to be greater than the first two quarters. And, and, and sitting there, and he began to pour into us and begin to say to us, he says, he said, he says, he says, I don't know how much time the Lord has given me on this planet, but if the Psalms are true and God has given us 75 possible years um, to exist on planet Earth and God graces me with 25 more, I want these last 25 to be better than my first 225. And you can see all of us were sitting in there and we were gripped by his words. And so men... One of the things that we need to become as fathers, as men, because it's kind of a dual message on manhood and fatherhood. I don't think you can have one without the other because you can't become a father until you understand manhood. And we'll talk about that in a second. And, 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 so, and, so, and so what's beautiful about our ideals as men and our understanding as men and our understanding as fathers, one of the things that we need to make the most of our time with is transmitting God's nutrition to men. Now, I'm not trying to get the girls out, the ladies out of the equation, but, but I, I, it's just important today, based on the context of the passage, that we kind of zoom in on the fellas. Is that all right, ladies? And so, and, so, and so David says, son, your time is short. But even hip-hop culture has found its way to find its way into a temporal philosophy of life. Now, you know, I remember songs were meant to last forever. I mean, you know whether a song is a one-hit wonder or a real short, like a, a, a hit that's going to roll on the radio based on a cookout. See, a cookout will tell you whether or not something was a timeless song or whether something is a long-term song. You let somebody, you let somebody put on, now it was a one-hit wonder, but you let somebody put on the electric slide. Everybody be eating their ribs and hot dogs. Then the DJ put on a lecture side. They said, oh, baby, I got the whole... And they, and they all run up. Even grandmama up there talking about something. It's electric. Boogie, woogie, woogie. And, then, and you, know, she, you know what I'm saying? Grandmama, because it has a timelessness to it. But even our understanding of hip-hop culture, like, the, 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 everything now is focused on the hit, the hit record. The only one... And I believe that's a sociological reflection of a spiritual issue of only thinking about a hit. Our lives are not just a one-hit wonder, but we're supposed to have longevity and faithfulness to begin to unveil to the generation the timeless truths of the nutrition of God and men. It's your responsibility, not the lady's responsibility. It's the men's responsibility, the headship. You got to let these cats know on the block. You got to let your family members know. You got to let the kids know that time is short. Jesus in the upper room discourse, that's what it was about. A fatherly discipler, if you will. Letting his, uh, his, um, his disciples know, fam, 
I only got a few more minutes. They brought to come get your boy. So these are the things that I want to make sure you get. Then after he raised from the grave, he still had a short time because the father appointed for him to come to heaven. So you see Jesus making the most of his time with those who he was going to pour into. And some of you said, I've already blown it because I was never around for my kids. I've already blown it because they don't see me making the most of the time. So I'm challenged with even talking to them about making the most of the time. Well, that's okay. What's good about God is God is the God of second chances. And what's beautiful about God is he will restore to the years that the locusts have eaten, even if your children are grown and married and have kids. That son still needs to hear from daddy. Because he'll hear from someone. And the question is, will that someone be you? And will that information that you give them, will it be biblical? we got to move. Then he says to him, Solomon says to him after that, he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's, that's a statement that continuously reigns in the Old Testament as a statement to men who get an opportunity uh, of authority and ruling. You see Joshua being told by the people several times in chapter 1, I will follow you, only be strong. Let me tell you something. The emphasis on the idea of being strong, it, it, it implies courage. See, what's important about courageous men is that's the emphasis on not being passive. Let me say that again. See, the worst thing in the church to have is a passive dude that won't do anything, that don't know anything. That won't walk with anybody. That won't, that wait on the left. There's a lot of women in here and all they're looking at is women because they like women but don't want to take the role to lead. And so what's important is, is that we gotta to begin to walk in a biblical understanding of courage. We don't have time for men to be falling back, being passive, but there's a deep necessity uh, for, for, for being courageous. You see that it's a tendency because what does Paul tell Timothy? Timothy was timid. Paul had to say, I don't care what your wiring is. I don't care if you're an introvert and all that. He said, oh, that's good, fam. He said, but at the end of the day, he says, God ain't giving you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and of sound mind. I like the way the New American Standard says that. He says, of discipline. So there's a demand on our lives to develop beyond the level of passivity. In other words, whenever someone is being asked or charged to do something, you're the last to raise your hand. That's not biblical manhood. See, biblical manhood says, I don't, I don't, I don't care who raises their hand. I'm going to put mine up first. And you always know that during prayer. When you ask somebody to pray. I can't stand when it's prayer time. And they say, I want a few people to pray. And the first voice you hear is an alto or soprano voice. Listen, when we talk about not being passive, there needs to be some tenor, some baritone, some first and second tenor. You know what I'm saying? Some, some baritone and some second, third, fourth, fifth through twentieth bass. You know what I'm saying? Up in the room, and you need to be, oh God, you need to be the first to jump out there. Like, like it doesn't be, five, you know, the, the women wait, they're like, when are these jokers going to start praying? When are they going to start praying? 
Father, I just thank you. You know what I'm saying? Soon as it opens up, it shouldn't be, I need to, med- let me see what I'm going to say. Yo, God, um, like, that's cool and all that. Like, you want to get your words together so people can say, mm, get before the throne of God. What you think this is? So, so he tells them to be strong. He said, don't punk out, son. He said, don't be a sucker with your manhood, son. He says, I want you to be a dude, not a chick. A dude. Amen. Because he says, I want, he says one of the emphasis on the legacy is I want, I want to leave is those who step up to the plate quickly. But in order to step up to the plate quickly, you gotta be prepared so when it's your turn to bat, you're ready to hit a home run family. So, so, so be strong. But then my man goes on and he, I like this. I've been meditating on this phrase since I became a Christian. And I've been meandering it. I've looked in the Hebrew on it. I've looked at it for years and years and years. And I think this is the greatest statement on manhood in the Bible. Hands down. He says, after that, he says, be strong. Then he says, show yourself a man. Wow. I like that. He didn't say become a man. He said show yourself a man. What's beautiful about this statement is is that there had to be some type of preparation of Solomon for Solomon to not be proclaimed to say, man, you got to grow up, son, and like be a man. Like if you got to tell your son to grow up, you haven't raised him. Unless he's walking in spiritual immaturity and he's unwilling to respond to the word of God and the work of God. That's when you tell him, son, grow up. But when a son is prepared, you want to be able to unleash him at 18, pat him on the butt like you're on the basketball court. Say, fam, go out, show yourself a man, get poppy a pound, bow, do your thing, family, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that show yourself a man. What's dope is he's talking to a cat that's about to become king, but he doesn't talk to him about becoming a king. He talks to him about being a man. Because he knows, he says, listen, I can talk to you about all the king, kingly rituals and how to talk to the counselors. And when you go to other countries, how to talk to magistrates and ambassadors. I can talk to you about that. But that's just formality. He says, but I want you to be a man before you're a king. Uh, see, 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 he wants him to know that kingliness is only as kingly as his manliness. So many people are trying to raise kings. You a king, black man. Rule. That ain't nothing. We used to wear our little African joint around the neck with our gumbies and high top fades and lying in our head. And we talking about fight the power and, and you know what I'm saying, and reading Metanetta and um, Behold the Pale. We ain't know nothing about being a man. We talking about, I'm telling you, man, see the white man, Shaka Zulu was a king. We were kings and queens. How you going to have a whole village of kings and queens? Everybody wasn't kings and queens. Everybody wasn't kings and queens. Shut all that up. Shut it all up. It can only be one king, one chief per village. So everybody, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So everybody ain't kings. We were kings, black men. Shut up. But what can we take away from that? What can we take away from that? When he says show yourself a man, he's helping his son to know that your kingliness 
flows from your manliness. So what is this telling us? We need to begin to teach our men biblical masculinity. The men only say biblical masculinity. masculinity. Say it one more time. Three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's important. See, that's important. I like the the heat and all of the... Blah, blah, blah. Say it one more time. I like that. Oh, I like that huskiness and tenors and baritones and bass. So we're talking about biblical masculinity. He tells them, show them not just some old thugism. Getting mad at it. Are you bumping because you... Ah, but, man. That's not what he's talking about. See, that's somebody that has to show off. But that's not showing yourself a man. See, if you always, if, if you got a chip on your shoulder all day long, or you, you, you gotta, you gotta walk around with a gat, someone's like, what? I'm the chip, what? What? You gotta, you, that ain't no man. Cause see, you always gotta prove your manhood by your attitude. And see, if you gotta prove your man by your attitude, but you're not functionally a man in your spiritual nutrition, then you need to stop fronting. Let's stop fronting, yeah. Because see, we need to understand biblically that God has called fathers. Uh, and we can't talk about fathers until we talk about men. We can't talk about royal priesthood until we've talked about the redemption that Christ brings to redeem us, to be freed up, to be who he called us to be prior to the fall. And so one of the results of Christ's death on the cross is, is for us to be men. An application of it. See, 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 when we are realigned with God's divine order based on trusting Jesus but growing spiritually, we're moving back towards God's original design for manhood so that people aren't confused when you say, show yourself a man. They already know what you're talking about. Why? Because they've been growing up and developing as men in the community of men. So he encourages him to show himself a man, to display biblical masculinity. A lot of times we say to somebody, man up, be a man, be a, be a man about it. You need to act like a man. Men don't do that. And a lot of times we don't ask the question of do they even know what a man is like? And so what's very important that we as believers must do is begin to develop this. That's why fathers need to define these terms for sons. You got to define what a man is. You got to define masculinity. You got to define what a male is. You got to define a father, a husband, a son, and a friend. Those are main. Those are many of the key roles that men take on. I, I like to watch them nature shows. And what's interesting is that most of the most of the animals on the nature shows have within them, through through um whatever you call it, I forgot what you call it, but basically they know what to do. That's what it means. They know what to do. I was watching this thing, man, and it was crazy. It was this black bird, and he was walking real slow, and he was going like this real slow on the branch. Then something was in the tree trying to eat the babies. You know what he did? His neck came out. It was crazy. And then he had this, this, this fluorescent blue, like, just like my boy's shirt right here, going across the line. And then he started going like this on the tree, going like that, 
and he was going like that. And he started going like that, you know, to keep him away from the babies. And he was like, and I was like, dang, how he learned how to do that. But it's funny, the whole species of, of, anim, of, of male birds of that species, you, you try to come on that branch if you want to. He said, you better stay off my branch. His whole thing would be flinging out. Now, when he's trying to mate, he do the same thing, but I, he got a different slide with that thing when he do that. You know what I'm saying? But when, but, but when, but, but, but when there's somebody up there, he like, and, and you, you let another lion come in another lion's territory. He goes to the edge of the territory. What do he say? Ooh. He'd be going like running and he, Ooh. and then the other lions, they know that a lion, what they do, they start marking their territory. Blah, 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 marking their territory. They say, come in my territory if you want to. It's a dude already here. Or wrecking shop. So this are my boundaries. There needs to be a clarity. There needs to be a clarity so that when it's time to biblically emphasize what it means to show ourselves a man, that we're not saying, oh, that's not humility. No, humility is seeing yourself as God sees you. It doesn't mean denying it because denying who God created you to be is pride. See, Jesus redeemed you to man up. But biblically, not based on some old uh, New Jack City Nino Brown manhood. That's some old boys in the hood. We're talking about some biblical boys in the book. And, s- <laughs> and, so, and so he says, he says, so he says, and he said, this one he says, then he begins to lay it out. I like it. He says, show yourself a man. Then he says, son, I'm going to show you what a man does. So I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to just lay out a few. David didn't lay out a whole bunch of stuff. But he said, this is how I want you to show yourself a man. And I like it because he explains manhood to his son. Like, this is rocking me. Because I didn't have that. I didn't have anybody, anybody sit me down. Yo, E, sit down, sit down, sit down. Until I became a believer. Showing me. What it looks like to be a man and being in an environment where biblical manliness was dope. Like, that's important. And so my man, David, begins to talk to his son. And the first thing he tells him to do, number one, in showing himself a man, is embrace the whole counsel of God. That sounds simple. But his first principle of manhood is to embrace the entire counsel of God. Why do I, where do I get that from? Look at the verses. Look at the, the latter part of verse 3. He says, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Wow. First thing he tells his son as he said, if you're going to be a man, you got to be a man of the book. But when you're a man of the book, son, you got to not like you got to read all of it. Like when he's using these terms, statutes, testimonies, laws and rules, it represents the designations of the different parts of scripture that they had at that time, which was the law of Moses. Let's look at his ways. I like that one. The Bible talks about God's ways. It's not God's path here. That's not what it means here. It means that you need to have 
a copy of the book because technically, based on Deuteronomy, and I believe it is 17, I'll talk about 17, it talks about every king making a copy of the law for themselves to keep near their throne and keep near their bed, and it's a command from God that every king does it. And so, and so, so, so he says, son, I don't care how much you get, you gotta keep the whole counsel of God. Now what does he mean about his ways? His ways. He means, I want you to get in the, in, in the law. I want you to get in God's Bible. I want you to get in the book. And I want you to learn what God is like. He's saying, I want you to know the character of God. I want you to know what God likes, what he doesn't like, how he thinks, his flow of decision making. I want you to know his ways. I, I want you to get in the word. I want you to store the information away. But what I want you to do, son, is I want you to know the heart of God. He says, son, if you're going to be a man, you can't be a man unless you know what Yahweh is like. That means you got to know what grace means. In relation to not just its definition, but how God utilizes grace. Not just that grace is unmerited favor, but how does God as father and God and display eternal masculinity, how does he show us his ways by grace? In other words, don't just get the definition, son. How does God flesh it out practically? Mercy, justice. How does God enact justice? How does God enact wrath in a holy way? How does God enact his holiness, not his separation and just his cleanliness away from all of creation, separate from his creation, but involved in his creation as holiness? But what does it look like when God applies it? He says, son, I want you to know, I want you to list the attributes of God, son. And I want you to give the definitions. Then I want you to begin to learn the process of, of manhood from how the father relates his manhood um, based on relationship with his creation. So he says, walk in his ways. Not only walk in his ways. He says, but keeping his statutes. Keeping his statutes or his covenantal regulations. His, and his rules, same thing. Testimonies. I like testimonies. Testimonies is kind of the whole of the law. But not only is testimonies the whole of the law... Testimonies is the acts of God as done among his people, like remembering how God did it and believing God for what he did in the Bible. Not just what he did for grandmama and them, uh, 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 cousin Buki and them, Ray Ray and, 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 and Bob. I'm not talking about what he, I'm talking about what he did in the Bible. That's the apnutas, word of God. So that when you meditate on that testimony, taking and extracting the principles of application and nutrients from that testimony and saying, if God did it then, I believe that he can do it now. And so one of the ways in which I'm courageous is I'm not just manning up according to some manly understanding of manhood, but I'm extracting principles based on the great acts of God among his covenantal people. And I'm saying, this is how I want to live it out practically while I'm on planet Earth. That's manhood family. Then he goes further. Then he says, he says in the testimonies, it is written in the law that you may prosper. There's that word prosper. That's one of those words. That has been probably one of the, I believe there are flagrant fouls being used with this word, even today. 
Because everybody talks about prosperity but don't really understand biblically what it means. Same word is used in Joshua um, chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. What's interesting is prosper really means success. Now, that means in order to understand what he's saying, notice he's talking in the context of the Bible. He's not just like talking about prosperity and success. I want to wear this type of gear. I want to have this type of stuff. Um, but he says, connect prosperity to the Bible. Now, how does he connect it to the Bible? In other words, what you have to do is as a man, you have to keep score like God keeps score. That means whatever makes God's heart glad, that's what makes your heart glad. What makes your heart sad, what makes God's heart sad must make your heart sad. In other words, prosperity is an experience God's intended redemptive ends. To experience God's intended redemptive ends. In other words, what, 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 in context, whatever God promises, you walk in the reality of what produces that promise in your life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now that means what is God's visionary picture for your spheres of influence? And then you pray down, you biblically get it and ask God to invade your circle of influence with his way of thinking and his way of doing things. So the promises and the way that he keeps score finds its way into you and in your circle of influence. And what I like about the next part is the part I'm going to just end on. I'm going to just end on this next part. He says, that you may prosper in all that you do, wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word, that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, that's their road, not just their character, to walk before me in faithfulness, consistency, in the midst of adversity, with all their heart, mind, emotions, will, and all their soul, same thing, just, just saying inner being or fulfillment of the law principle, um, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now this points back to, of course, the Davidic covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, house, throne, kingdom, verses 15 through uh, 13, uh, 12 through 15, I think it is, in 2 Samuel 7. But what's interesting, I like about this, is that it, it is enacting a larger principle. Although this is coming forth of the messianic reign of Christ, what's beautiful about what, what he's doing is he's casting family vision. He's casting a biblical vision for his family based on what the Bible says about it. Now, of course, that word was specifically spoken to him covenantally, but I believe that we can extract a principle from here that every man must have a family vision. Every man. What does that look like? What is your, if you want to be married, what is your vision for a wife? If you are married, where do you see your wife in five to ten years? See, you can't wash her with the water of the word without no direction. You can't just respond to your minimal arguments that you have on a daily basis. Because if you do, you're a responder and you're just intervening, but you're not preventing through biblical vision. In other words, where do we get biblical vision from? Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. What is vision? In other words, what are God's goals? Let me line up every area of my life based on God's principled goals for those different areas of life. Y'all got to stay with me. I know it's hot. Y'all falling asleep. Stay with me. Because listen to this part. He's 
it's, it's beautiful because David wants us, God wants us, Jesus wants every man to have a clear family vision. That means, what's the vision for your wife? What's the vision for your finances? What's the vision for your children? I'm not talking about you saying they're going to be a doctor and you're going to chart the court. That's not what he's talking about here. I want my child to be a lawyer. I want my child to be a singer. I want him to be what I want. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about charting a biblical vision based on God's biblical plan for God and his children. So if you want your child to be a disciple maker, which God wants them to, that means you've got to chart their lives in such a way where you mimic it. If you want your child and your family to be missional, guess what you've got to do? If you want your child and your family to be evangelistic, guess what you've got to do? If you want your children to not get in a bunch of debt, guess what you've got to not do? See, vision, and this ain't just talking smack. You know, one day we're going, 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 one day. That's become a song around the house. Nobody want to hear, one day we're going, it's been 35, 80 years. So that means that we got to pull on the cross. Because Christ has came and turned his God's created order back to the way it, it, it was supposed to designed to be. And therefore, we're grace to it. So now... We got to begin. I wrote a syllabus for my wife. I wrote a syllabus. She doesn't know that. But I wrote it in charting her journey. I said, I sat down and I said, God, I like to see, I like to have a 20 year vision for my wife. God took me to several passages Psalm 127, Psalm 128, Ephesians chapter 5, verse uh, 26, and verse 29. Verse 26 is a prevention and intervention verse, washing her with the water of the world. I'm just giving you some practical stuff. But the Bible says that I must cherish and nourish her. Now, in order to make sure that the flow of this doesn't get jacked up, I went over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, so that my prayers could be answered. Because, see, I can pray and get God's vision all I want to, but if I treat my wife like hell, God shuts down heaven and nothing happens, and the household suffers because of my lack of submissiveness to his biblical vision. Y'all stand with me? And so what you got to begin to do is you got to sit down and you got to get a course description. That means, what does your, where is your wife currently? What are her spiritual deficiencies? What in her past is that she needs to have answered? Some of you guys, when y'all talk about y'all want to marry somebody, you better think about it before you get into it because God is demanding that you have a vision. And when the Bible says teachers are under the stricter judgment, that's not just talking about teachers in the church. It's talking about every authoritative teacher in the body of Christ. So guess who else he holds responsible for whether or not they're teaching, proclaiming, being a man, being strong, showing himself a man. Guess who? You! And so that means it's important. I'm not trying to just beat you down. We got to begin to get to the hard work of what is not, not what I want in a woman. Like, I will, listen, when people say what I want in somebody, that's not vision. That's something about in order for me to get what I need, this is what I need. Vision starts with the eyes of God in the word of God. So you got to know what God is dreaming about. What? Ask God, God, what are you dreaming about for me as a husband? God, what are you dreaming about for my wife? See, and then fatherhood comes as a result of manhood under Jesus and a biblically class vision. Fatherhood is an application of redemptive manhood. Ah. And so, there, so there's, a, there's a desperate need. For, so family, I'm just calling us as men. As men. 
Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you blew it, whether you think you're doing well and you're prideful about it. Listen, it's time for us by the Lord's grace through Jesus Christ. What's dope about Jesus is Jesus gave us access to the ultimate father. And it says, he says, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time except for the only begotten son or God who explained him. So Jesus Christ, the Bible uses anthropomorphic language, human language to describe an eternal relationship. But the way it uses it anthropomorphically is it talks about, and when you go throughout the book of John, even through our series, there's this sense of suddenly posturing that Jesus has to the Father that gives him the ability to be man and Messiah. But y'all didn't know that even though the Father is the Father of all creation, do you know, and, and us, do you know that Jesus plays a role as a Father? In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting what? Wow. Better translation of that is father of eternity. That means the, that because Jesus is the word, he executed creation based on the father's vision. Stay with me. And so whatever the father proclaimed, listen, Jesus as the word went out and did it. So when he came and died on the cross, it's based on his father's vision. And so in, in, uh, John 15 is about the father's vision being uh, that the son would be connected to his people and that the nutrients of being in an abiding relationship with him flows from the father to the son and from the son to his people. And so that's what we must do, fellas. We have to stay in beastie relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ because there is no fatherhood without the Messiah. There is no fatherhood without the Messiah. There is no manhood without the Messiah. There is none without him. And he alone is the best explainer of fatherhood. How do you, how do I know that? Because the Bible says the only begotten son explained the ultimate father. So you can, you can pull yourself up about your bootstraps or you want try to man up based on a human thugism, watching a, a American gangster and all that kind of carrying on. But I'm just telling you right now that at the end of the day, Jesus must be seen and accepted as the ultimate explainer of a father, but ultimately the ultimate man who explains his father. And out of that flows the application of fatherhood, manhood, fatherhood, friend, husband, all of that good stuff. So as we think through Father's Day, as we close, I pray that we would put a dent in the statistics and I believe the central way to put a dent in the statistics is through biblical manhood. But the, but the ultimate way to put a dent in biblical manhood is to be in Christ. And maybe you're here today. I don't want you to, especially if you don't know Jesus, I don't want you to come here and get some good principles, practical principles on manhood. Because you will not be able to do them. You're powerless. I'm powerless to do any of this. There's only one way to be a man, and that's through being in Christ. 
Now, the goal of being in Christ is not to be a man. It's to get back in the relationship restored between God and man. So maybe you're here today and you're, you, you, God has yelled at you through the spirit. Maybe he's done that. But there's a step before that. Because what we talked about today is what we call sanctification. But what first has to happen is justification. That means that Jesus Christ must be trusted. A relationship must be restored before other relationships can be restored. And that relationship is the relationship between God and man. Father, I make the opportunity open.